Chapter 2, Part 8 of Our Village, Volume 1 by Mary Russell Mitford Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1 Walks in the Country, Part 8 The Cops April 18th Sad, wintry weather A northeast wind A sun that puts out one's eyes Without affording the slightest warmth Dryness that chaps lips and hands like a frost in December. Rain that comes chilly and arrowy like hail in January. Nature at a dead pause. No seeds up in the garden. No leaves out in the hedgerows. No cowslips swinging their pretty bells in the fields. No nightingales in the dingles. No swallows skimming round the great pond. No cuckoos. But ever I should miss that rascally sonneteer in any part. Nevertheless, there is something of a charm in this wintry spring, this putting back of the seasons. If the flower clock must stand still for a month or two, could it choose a better time than that of the primroses and violets? I never remember, and for such gourds my memory, if not very good for aught of wise or useful, may be trusted, such an affluence of the one or such a duration of the other. Primrosy is the epithet which this year will retain in my recollection. Hedge, ditch, meadow and field, even the very paths and highways are set with them, but their chief habitat is a certain copse about a mile off where they are spread like a carpet, and where I go to visit them rather oftener than quite comports with the dignity of a lady of mature age. I am going thither this very afternoon, and May and her company are going too. This mayflower of mine is a strange animal. Instinct and imitation make in her an approach to reason which is sometimes almost startling. She mimics all that she sees us do, with the dexterity of a monkey, and far more of gravity and apparent purpose. Cracks nuts and eats them, gathers currants and severs them from the stalk with the most delicate nicety filches and munches apples and pears is as dangerous in an orchard as a schoolboy smells to flowers smiles at meeting answers in a pretty lively voice when spoken to sad pity that the language should be unknown and has greatly the advantage of us in a conversation inasmuch as our meaning is certainly clear to her all this and a thousand amusing prettinesses to say nothing of her canine feat of bringing her game straight to her master's feet and refusing to resign it to any hand but his, does my beautiful greyhound perform untaught by the mere effect of imitation and sagacity. Well, May, at the end of the coursing season, having lost Brush, our old spaniel, her great friend, and the blue greyhound Mariette, her comrade and rival, both of which four-footed worthies were sent out to keep for the summer, began to find solitude a weary condition, and to look abroad for company. Now it so happened that the same suspension of sport which had reduced our little establishment from three dogs to one had also dispersed the splendid kennel of a celebrated courser in our neighbourhood, three of whose finest young dogs came home to their walk, as the sporting phrase goes, at the collar makers in our village. May, accordingly, on the first morning of her solitude, she had never taken the slightest notice of her neighbours before, although they had sojourned in our street upwards of a fortnight, 
bethought herself of the timely resource offered to her by the vicinity of these canine bow, and went up boldly and knocked at their stable door, which was already very commodiously on the half-latch. The three dogs came out with much alertness and gallantry, and May, declining apparently to enter their territories, brought them off to her own. This manoeuvre has been repeated every day with one variation. Of the three dogs, the first a brindle, the second a yellow, and the third a black, the two first only are now allowed to walk or consort with her, and the last poor fellow, for no fault that I can discover except May's caprice, is driven away not only by the fair lady, but even by his old companions, is, so to say, sent to Coventry. Of her two permitted followers, the yellow gentleman, Saladin by name, is decidedly the favourite. He is indeed May's shadow, and will walk with me whether I choose or not. It's quite impossible to get rid of him unless by discarding Miss May also, and to accomplish a walk in the country without her would be like an adventure of Don Quixote without his faithful squire Sancho. So forth we set, May and I, and Saladin and the Brindle, May and myself walking with the sedateness and decorum befitting our sex and age, she is five years old, this grass, rising six, the young things, for the Saladin and the Brindle are, not meaning any disrespect, little better than puppies, frisking and frolicking as best please them. Our route lay for the first part along the sheltered, quiet lanes which lead to our old habitation, a way never trodden by me without peculiar and home-like feelings, full of the recollections, the pains and pleasures of other days. But we're not to talk sentiment now. Even May would not understand that maudlin language. We must get on. What a wintry hedgerow this is for the 18th of April! primrosy to be sure, abundantly spangled with those stars of the earth, but so bare, so leafless, and so cold. The wind whistles through the brown boughs as in winter. Even the early elder shoots, which do make an approach to springiness, look brown, and the small leaves of the woodbine, which have also ventured to peep forth, are of a sad purple, frost-bitten, like a dairy-maid's elbows on a snowy morning. The very birds in this season of pairing and building look chilly and uncomfortable, and their nests... Oh, Saladin, come away from the hedge! Don't you see that what puzzles you and makes you leap up in the air is a redbreast nest? Don't you see the pretty speckled eggs? Don't you hear the poor hen calling, as it were, for help? Come here this moment, sir! And by good luck, Saladin, who for a paynim has tolerable qualities, comes, before he has touched the nest, or before his playmate the brindle, the less manageable of the two, has espied it. Now we go round the corner and cross the bridge, where the common, with its clear stream winding between clumps of elms, assumes so park-like an appearance. Who's this approaching so slowly and majestically? This square bundle of petticoat and cloak, this road-wagon of a woman. It is, oh, it must be Mrs. Sally Meering, the completest specimen within my knowledge of farmeresses, may I be allowed that innovation in language, as they were. It can be nobody else. Mrs. Sally Meering, when I first became acquainted with her, occupied, together with her father, a superannuated man of ninety, 
a large farm very near our former habitation. It had been anciently a great manor-farm or courthouse, and was still a stately, substantial building, whose lofty halls and spacious chambers gave an air of grandeur to the common offices to which they were applied. Traces of gilding might yet be seen on the panels which covered the walls, and on the huge carved chimney-pieces which rose almost to the ceilings, and the marble tables and the inlaid oak staircase still spoke of the former grandeur of the court. Mrs. Sally corresponded well with the date of her mansion, although she troubled herself little with its dignity. She was thoroughly of the old school, and had a most comfortable contempt for the new, rose at four in winter and summer, breakfasted at six, dined at eleven in the forenoon, supped at five, and was regularly in bed before eight, except when the hay-time or the harvest imperiously required her to sit up till sunset, a necessity to which she submitted with no very good grace. To a deviation from these hours, and to the modern iniquities of white aprons, cotton stockings, and muslin handkerchiefs, Mrs. Sally herself always wore check, black worsted, and a sort of yellow compound which she was wont to call sussy, together with the invention of drill-plough and thrashing-machines, and other agricultural novelties, she failed not to attribute all the mishaps or misdoings of the whole parish. The last-mentioned discovery especially aroused her indignation. Oh, to hear her descant on the merits of the flail, wielded by a stout right arm such as she had known in her youth, for by her account there was as great a deterioration in bones and sinews as in the other implements of husbandry, was enough to make the very inventor break his machine. She would even take up her favourite instrument and thrash the air herself by way of illustrating her argument, and, to say truth, few men in these degenerate days could have matched the stout, brawny, muscular limb which Mrs. Sally displayed at sixty-five. In spite of this contumacious rejection of agricultural improvements, the world went well with her at Court Farm. A good landlord, an easy rent, incessant labour, unremitting frugality, and excellent times, ensured a regular though moderate profit, and she lived on, grumbling and prospering, flourishing and complaining, till two misfortunes befell her at once. Her father died, and her lease expired. The loss of her father, although a bedridden man turned of ninety, who could not in the course of nature have been expected to live long, was a terrible shock to the daughter, who was not so much younger as to be without fears for her own life, and who had besides been so used to nursing the good old man and looking to his little comforts, that she missed him as a mother would miss an ailing child. The expiration of the lease was a grievance and a puzzle of a different nature. Her landlord would have willingly retained his excellent tenant, but not on the terms which she then held the land, which hadn't varied for fifty years, so that poor Mrs. Sally had the misfortune to find rent rising and prices sinking both at the same moment. A terrible solecism in political economy. Even this, however, I believe she would have endured, rather than have quitted the house where she was born, and to which all her ways and notions were adapted, had not a priggish steward, as much addicted to improvement of reform as she was to precedent and established usages, 
insisted on binding her by lease to spread a certain number of loads of chalk on every field. This tremendous innovation, for never had that novelty in manure whitened the crofts and pitals of Court Farm, decided her at once. She threw the proposals into the fire and left the place in a week. Her choice of a habitation occasioned some wonder and much amusement in our village world. To be sure, upon the verge of seventy, an old maid may be permitted to dispense with the more rigid punctilio of her class, but Mrs. Sally had always been so tenacious on the score of character, so very a prude, so determined an avoider of the menfolk, as she was wont contemptuously to call them, that we were all conscious of something like astonishment on finding that she and her little handmaid had taken up their abode in one end of a spacious farmhouse belonging to the bluff old bachelor George Robinson of the Lee. Now, Farmer Robinson was quite as notorious for his aversion to petticoated things as Mrs. Sally for her hatred to the unfeathered bipeds who wear doublet and hose, so that there was a little astonishment in that quarter too, and plenty of jests, which the honest farmer speedily silenced by telling all who joked on the subject that he had given his lodger fair warning that let people say what they would, he was quite determined not to marry her, so that if she had any views that way, it would be better for her to go elsewhere. This declaration, which must be admitted to have been more remarkable for frankness than civility, made, however, no ill impression on Mrs. Sally. To the farmer's she went, and at his house she lived still with her little maid, her tabby-cat, a decrepit sheep-dog, and much of the lumber of Court Farm, which she could not find in her heart to part from. There she follows her old ways and her old hours, untempted by matrimony, and unassailed, as far as I hear, by love or by scandal, with no other grievance than an occasional dearth of employment for herself and her young lass. Even pewter dishes do not always want scouring, and now and then a twinge of the rheumatism. So here she is, that good relic of the olden time, for in spite of her whims and prejudices, a better and kinder woman never lived. Here she is, with the hood of her red cloak pulled over her close black bonnet, of that silk which once, it may be presumed, was fashionable, since it is still called mode, and her whole stout figure huddled up in a miscellaneous and most substantial covering of thick petticoats, gowns, aprons, shawls and cloaks, a weight which it requires the strength of a thrasher to walk under, here she is, with her square, honest visage and her loud, frank voice, and we hold a pleasant, disjointed chat of rheumatisms and early chickens, bad weather and hats with feathers in them, the last exceedingly sore subject being introduced by poor Jane Davies, a cousin of Mrs. Sally, who, passing us in a beaver bonnet on her road from school, stopped to drop her little curtsy, and was soundly scolded for her civility. Jane, who is a gentle, humble and smiling lass, about twelve years old, receives so many rebukes from her worthy relative and bears them so meekly that I shouldn't wonder if they were to be followed by a legacy. I sincerely wish they may be. Well, at last we said good-bye, 
when on inquiring my destination and hearing that i was bent to the ten-acre copse part of the farm which she had ruled for so long she stopped to tell me a dismal story of two sheep-stealers who sixty years ago were found hidden in that copse and only taken after great difficulty and resistance and the maiming of a peace officer oh pray don't go there miss for mercy's sake don't be so venturesome think if they should kill you were the last words of mrs sally oh, many thanks for her care and kindness but without being at all foolhardy in general i've no great fear of the sheep-stealers of sixty years ago even if they escaped hanging for that exploit i should greatly doubt their being in case to attempt another so on we go down the short shady lane and out on to the pretty retired green shut in by fields and hedgerows which we must cross to reach the copse how lively this green nook is to-day half covered with cows and horses and sheep and how glad these frolicsome greyhounds are to exchange the hard gravel of the high road for this pleasant short turf which seems made for their gambols how beautifully they are at play chasing each other round and round in lessening circles darting off at all kinds of angles crossing and recrossing may and trying to win her sedateness into a game at romps turning round on each other with gay defiance pursuing the cows and the colts leaping up as if to catch the crows in their flight all in their harmless and innocent oh wretches villains and rascals four-footed mischiefs canine plagues saladin brindle they're after the sheep saladin i say they have actually singled out that pretty spotted lamb brutes if i catch you saladin brindle we shall be taken up for sheep stealing presently ourselves they have chased the poor little lamb into a ditch and are mounting guard over it standing at bay oh wretches i have you now for shame saladin get away brindle see how good may is off with you brutes for shame for shame and brandishing a handkerchief which could hardly be an efficient instrument of correction i succeeded in driving away the two puppies who after all meant nothing more than play although it was somewhat rough and rather too much in the style of the old fable of the boys and the frogs may is gone after them perhaps to scold them for she has been as grave as a judge during the whole proceeding keeping ostentatiously close to me and taking no part whatever in the mischief the poor little pretty lamb here it lies on the bank quite motionless frightened i believe to death for certainly those villains never touched it it doesn't stir does it breathe oh yes it does it is alive and safe enough look it opens its eyes and finding the coast clear and its enemies far away it springs up in a moment and gallops to its dam who has stood bleating the whole time at a most respectful distance who would suspect a lamb of so much simple cunning i really thought the pretty thing was dead and now how glad the ewe is to recover her curling spotted little one how fluttered they look well this adventure has flurried me too between fright and running i warrant you my heart beats as fast as the lambs oh, 
here is the shameless villain Saladin, the cause of the commotion, thrusting his slender nose into my hand to beg pardon and make up. The wickedest of soldans, most iniquitous pagan, soul of a Turk. But there's no resisting the good-humoured creature's penitence. I must pat him. There, there. Now we'll go to the copse. I'm sure we'll find no worse malefactors than ourselves, shall we, May? And the sooner we get out of sight of sheep, the better, for Brindle seems meditating another attack. Allons, monsieur, over this gate and across this meadow, and here is the copse. How boldly that superb ash-tree with its fine silver bark rises from the bank, and what a fine entrance it makes, with the holly beside it, which also deserves to be called a tree. But here we are in the copse. Ah, oh, only one half of the underwood was cut last year, and the other is at its full growth. Hazel, briar, woodbine and bramble forming one impenetrable thicket, and almost uniting with the lower branches of the elms and oaks and beeches, which rise at regular distances overhead. No foot can penetrate that dense and thorny entanglement, but there is a walk all round by the side of the wide sloping bank, walk and bank and copse carpeted with primroses, whose fresh and balmy odour impregnates the very air. Oh, how exquisitely beautiful! And it is not the primroses only, those gems of flowers, but the natural mosaic of which they form a part, that network of ground ivy with its lilac blossoms and the subdued tint of its purplish leaves, those rich mosses, those enamelled wild hyacinths, those spotted arums, and above all those wreaths of ivy linking all those flowers together with chains of leaves more beautiful than blossoms, whose white veins seem swelling amid the deep green or splendid brown. It is the whole earth that is so beautiful. Never surely were primroses so richly set, and never did primroses better deserve such a setting. There they are of their own lovely yellow, the hue to which they have given a name, the exact tint of the butterfly that overhangs them. The first I've seen this year. Can spring really be coming at last? Sprinkled here and there with tufts of a reddish purple, and others of the purest white, as some accident of soil affects that strange and inscrutable operation of nature, the colouring of flowers. Oh, how fragrant they are! And how pleasant it is to sit in this sheltered copse, listening to the fine creaking of the wind amongst the branches, the most unearthly of sounds, with this gay tapestry under our feet, and the wood-pigeons flitting from tree to tree, and mixing the deep note of love with the elemental music. Yes, spring is coming. Wood-pigeons, butterflies, and sweet flowers all give token of the sweetest of the seasons. Spring is coming. The hazel stalks are swelling and putting forth their pale tassels, the satin palms with their honeyed odours are out on the willow, and the last lingering winter berries are dropping from the hawthorn and making way for the bright and blossomy leaves. End of chapter 2, part 8